Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. This week... We discuss the Haringey development vehicle. No, wait, come back. It's really interesting. We discuss the Conservatives' lack of a message. And we talk about whether or not Graham Brady and the 1922 committee would bring down Theresa May. So this doesn't promise to be the most exciting topic, but please bear with us because I think it, I think we can make it exciting, can't we, Stephen? If I'm going to say... find out. <laughs> Yeah, no promises. If I say the words Haringey development vehicle to you, what do you say? I admit a low groan. I, so, Can you explain this to me? Because this is, is, I think this is one of those things that is, has become a kind of emblematic row in the party. And there are some things you need to know about it and there are probably some things you don't. But essentially it was a council proposal from a North London council about redeveloping land and bringing in new housing, which has either been seen as... Yes, there are some downsides to this, but we this is the only way we're going to get new housing and upgrade some stuff versus this is a sort of you know, Tory light plot to kind of uh, winkle out existing residents from their homes. I, I mean, that's a slight caricature, but that's what I got from it. The objection people who have against it kind of splits into a couple of facts. There's the it will dispossess uh, too many existing tenants. There's the these public sector private partnerships don't work. And then there are people who have specific worries about lend lease with relation to promises made uh, in Southwark. Do you mean the Haygate estate? Yeah, that people feel were not kept. So I think um, there has been a big problem. I mean, the one that, that that's the Haygate is a redevelopment in Elephant and Castle. And there was an idea that they would use. Uh, so when they redevelop land, there's a thing called Section 120, which is the idea that you have to provide a certain amount of affordable housing. Now, notoriously, developers are brilliant at winkling out of this and it gets whittled away because they say, oh, no, we're actually not going to make enough profits on it. So what happened in the Haygate was a lot of people got displaced from their houses with the presumption that actually they would bring all this stuff would come in. It would be like a new amazing like squash courts or whatever it would be. And actually that stuff got whittled and whittled away. So people felt that what had happened is essentially a private developer had been able to make a lot of money and they hadn't had any of the things that they were promised. So that's sort of some of the same concerns in, in Haringey. Yeah. But the thing I would strongly urge anyone talking about it or having an opinion about it outside well anyone trying to analyze it from outside of of Haringey and indeed because of of what's now happened inside Haringey as well actually you don't really need to know what the HDV is about it's a bit like um so the the slight problem with a lot of the kind of takes about what Haringey means for the state of of labor and the left in 2018 is it's a bit like someone going there was a war of religion in the Germanic states in the 15th 15th 
15th century. I really ought to know this, but... I can the, never do the thing where it's like, um, if it's happened in 1600, it's actually the 17th century. But I agree, with, um, I know what you mean, right? You don't going, need to have a view will on... There, you know, will there be a war, in, a, a war in Germany in the 21st century? Well, you don't need to know whether or not the Yorkists or Lancastrians were right to think that the Wars of the Roses is an interesting conflict. Yes, but also, crucially, I think the thing is, right, what you kind of need to understand is, like, the the difference between why things have happened in Harringay and have not happened in Hackney or Camden or any of the other neighbouring boroughs is this thing called the HDV. Just as in the same way, if you want to understand why is that... Zach Goldsmith resigned to fight a by-election. You have to understand that there's this thing called the third runway, but you can fairly take the view that the government is never going to actually reach a decision on the third runway, and then therefore any time you spend reaching a view on the rightness or wrongness of the third runway is time that you could use doing Learn literally a musical instrument, anything perhaps. else. Yeah, the and um, my take on the HDV is essentially the level of expertise that you're going to require to have some kind of understanding of it in any great length, I don't really think is worth it unless you are a Harringay resident. Okay, um, so in that case, then we look at what it's a proxy war for, right? Which is, as I see it, between momentum activists and whatever you want to call the old guard. I don't think actually most of them would think of themselves as Blairites. So I'm sure they're often pejoratively described in those terms about a kind of clash between labour institutions and newer activist members. Even then. So so Harringay is, is the largest local Labour Party in the country. Is that Hornsey and Wood Green? Hornsey and Wood Green is the largest local. But I, I, they organise as a borough party most... I think they still do most labor parties in cities organize either on a city-wide or if they're big cities like london on a a borough wide basis i think even then i don't think it's that helpful to view it through that prism essentially in in every constituency party you have a group of people some of whom have been around for a long time some people have come back who would like to replace the existing local establishment to a greater or lesser extent You have a large chunk of new members who have, in most of the country, a not particularly developed political sense, right? And this is one of the reasons why Harringay is... I can't work out to pronounce it because I didn't study Latin. Sui generis or however. Sui generis, I would say. Gener- who I mean, knows if that's right? I don't say yeah, it out loud Please write enough. in. Uh, except don't write in because how would that be helpful? Um, <laughs> send an audio yeah, tape send, in. Yeah, please send an audio tape. Some of the people who have joined in London are more politically aware uh they have come from other parties of the left or they left labor in the 80s so your london new member is slightly different although there are still plenty of london members who are just people who are enthused by jeremy who are not so but this is a big argument isn't it that runs throughout discussions of labor and kind of speaks to some of the stuff maybe we'll talk about later about to what extent you see new members as a welcome addition that swells the ranks of labor and to what extent you see them as nefarious entry spent on the destruction of everything that you hold dear is very much a an, an open question i mean i maybe i've said this on the podcast before but in some ways it is a very nice problem for labor to have i did an event with jess phillips the labor birmingham yardley mp and johnny mercer the tory mp for plymouth more view and jess was talking about how big her association is now you know and actually managing that and the relationships there is a big part of, of her work in the constituency and johnny said well look you know my association uh, that chose me is like I mean this isn't exactly right but you know in this ballpark is eight people with an average age of 74 
So some of the problems that Labour has in terms of you know having all these new members are problems that the Tory party would kind of quite like to have, like having small, you know, withered local party associations is not a great answer either. Yeah, and, and essentially what has happened in most local parties so far is the, the new members have effectively sorted themselves into a political position not dissimilar from the one of the, in fact, basically identical to the one of the Labour Party on the 12th of September 2015 or whenever it was and Jeremy Corbyn was first elected. The thing that the HDV has successfully done, if you are someone who 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 wanted to replace the existing councillors, or unsuccessfully if you were a councillor who's been selected, is it has polarised the Labour Party to a position to its left of what it was before 2015. Actually, the fascinating thing so far, and obviously this may change, is that Labour, other than its leader... You know, Labour was fairly solid, solidly electing uh, left-wing members of the NEC on the members before and was electing kind of MPs in that kind of like slightly to, I mean, is slightly to Ed Miliband's left or maybe just where Ed Miliband sort of wanted to be left without the need to have Ed Balls in his shadow cabinet. Like, But this is also kind of an interesting question about what momentum has done and the limits of how it has reformed the party, right? So you ended up with John Lansman and the other two candidates from the momentum slate getting elected to the NEC, which is very important in terms of the fact there is now a kind of Corbyn, pro-Corbyn majority there. But equally well, in candidate selection, things haven't gone quite so smoothly and actually favoured sons like, um, I think I'm right in saying that David Prescott, as in son of John and as in speechwriter, didn't get selected recently. In, in, you know, so there's not, it's not like that Corbyn has got this kind of complete iron grip on and is just installing his favoured lieutenants without anyone kind of, without, without or, any kind of Yeah, although in Mansfield, pushback. the latest constituency to not select David Prescott, um, yeah, no, I, I don't no, mean no, that no, nastily. That he has, very, he very has, shady, he, and I'm sure has, you didn't mean it like that. He has gone for selection in, in a, a number of places. And lots of people do, yeah. Okay. Um, and see. yeah, a number of people do go for in multiple places, and, you know, good good luck to them. The My information is that the most likely candidate to win in Mansfield is the woman who currently leads the council, who embarrassingly I have forgotten the name of. I'm really sorry if you're a podcast listener. Uh, and indeed, I'm really sorry to the good people of Mansfield, because I should be able to remember the name of your council leader, is considered likely to win and has kind of Corbyn-y sympathies. So Which the- makes sense to select a local candidate, because this was the same thing as the row over one of the North London seats, right, which they felt was a very knife-edge one. And there was a strong argument that you elect a local candidate, you don't parachute someone into a, a marginal seat. And Mansfield was won by... Oh, I'm, I've, you know, I've, I wrote this in a piece and I've completely forgotten how many seats the Tories won it by. Uh, votes the Tories won it by, but it was... Few. It was um, under a, under a couple of hundred, right? It really is a, yeah, it, a proper proper wafer thin marginal that Labour would definitely need to take next time. Um, yeah, and I think so. Some of Momentum's problems in selections this time have been slightly overwritten. Yeah, you know, the thing about the Momentum membership is it is, as I understand it, effectively a mirror image of the Labour membership in terms of where it is strongest and where are the vacant seats. They are. Yeah, effectively, they are play. Labour has kind of already leveraged its its membership advantage, right? So, if you take say the Brighton constituencies, huge membership. One of those used to, well, two of those used to be marginal. Now they all have like comically large majorities, and there is not really a neighbouring seat that you can easily move your ground troops into. And so, my suspicion is momentum will do slightly better 
at the by the end of this parliament when we'll have the retirement seats in places you would expect them to be stronger. Um, but the unions did a great job at the last election of carving up those, you know, some good seats for themselves, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think that will continue to be the case. One of the reasons why I think that it is unlikely, not impossible, but unlikely that there will be broad rule changes is that the trade unions do quite well out of the existing arrangements. They have this problem in selections and their power is largely a, a negative one and they can stop things happening. But it is hard to see what the rule change you would have that gives more power to the membership that doesn't decisively erode your power if you are a trade union leader. Okay, so this brings us to the second bit that I wanted to talk to you about this week, which is which is kind of linked to it, right? Which is, you know, this idea about Momentum being this kind of evil infiltrator pack of kind of basically thinly disguised communists is something that, bless them, the Tories are trying very hard to push, right? This is one of their staple attack lines, along with it'll be like Venezuela, it'll be like the 1970s, Diane Abbott's stupid, Jeremy Corbyn went on press TV, and something about the economy, they'll do Marxists, some, they're all Marxists, big, you know, they want to nationalise your mum. And I think you were tweeting quite interesting stuff about the fact that the Tory attack lines are flailing around the place because they don't have uh, proceed from an, an idea of what the Tory party is for at the moment, right? So you can't draw a kind of negative comparison about what Labour's doing wrong unless you have an idea about what you think you're doing right. Well, yeah, it was one of those kind of weird moments and I was uh, trying and failing to write my Guardian cookery column as as it happens. What you what picture what picture is going to be this week? Uh the next week it is uh Michelle Obama. Are you dressed as Michelle Obama? I mean uh, dressed as Michelle Obama is probably putting slightly <laughs> too far a point on it. I mean uh, sadly I you can't see my lower body so I'm not wearing a dress but you know I'm hoping you know if I Have you got your arms out at least? Your strong uh, Michelle I Obama I am doing guns. like a kind of strong sort of like a bar. Well, I mean, I don't know what photos they, they'll have picked. Okay. But well, in any case, I was I was struggling and, and, and failing to be witty about cooking in the style of Michelle Obama. And I kind of started procrastinating on Twitter. And I suddenly realized if you are, if someone, if someone sent us to you ask us, what is the theme of the Conservative Party's messaging at the moment? I would have to kind of look at them for a while and go... Uh, Labour is bad. It's Labour is bad. But the thing is, is Labour is bad. It's not even we're getting on with Brexit, actually. They haven't really are not making that argument particularly well at the moment. Yeah, and I think, you know, kind of, if you are as cool as me, right, a, a really good demonstration of what has gone wrong in terms of their uh, their overall messaging is to watch either of Philip Hammond's budgets and then watch George Osborne's or actually Gordon Brown's or Dennis or basically any any chancellor not called Philip Hammond, right? Because essentially, if the thing that Osborne did well, Gordon Brown did well, actually, even though they lost, Alistair Darling and Ken Clark both did well, is the budget is one of the few opportunities for people who are not that bothered by politics where you can kind of go, we think that this government is about X. And the question we think voters should be asking at the next election is why. So obviously under Cameron and Osborne, it was like, this budget is about making the tough choices to cut things than people who don't vote for us use in order to put some money into the things that the people who might vote for us or have voted for us care about, while overall reducing slightly the share of, of state spenders' uh, GDP. And Labour won't do this. And Gordon Brown's sort of argument was effectively like, we are being responsible so we can do nice things. The Conservatives will not be responsible and are mean. The Conservatives at the moment do not have an argument that leads to, particularly because it's not even just like Labour are bad. It is Labour are bad about things that we know that, you know, quote unquote, the average voter simply does not give a flying one. I 
do find it a bit depressing that the only place where you can really see any kind of effect from Labour's sluggish response to anti-Semitism are uh, seats where the community gathers in great numbers. However, we now know that to be true, right? So if you are the Conservative Party and you retain some interest in holding on to power, having one of those parliamentary majority things I hear so much about, you kind of have to accept that there is not, you know, like there are, there are not vote, more votes to be harnessed from that approach. I just suddenly realised, wait a second, yeah, there is no big argument coming from the Conservatives about what they think the next election is about, which is, of course, partly because they have this horrible project that takes up all of the civil services' time in Brexit. But also, um, there couldn't be a bigger stamp on Theresa May that just said interim leader, right? Yeah. And that just feels... I was just going to finish by saying and tell you a, a, something that make you kind of sad. You mentioned George Osborne. I nearly accidentally ended up in a conversation with George Osborne uh, yesterday. I went to the theatre to see Julius Caesar at the Bridge Theatre, and I was going up to talk to someone else who I knew, who I then, just as I literally, as I just hit the kind of periphery of the conversation, realised that behind the pillar there was George Osborne. But he's haunting my life, Stephen, because when I went to the first night of previews for Hamilton, there was him, like three rows in front of me, taking selfies. And I'm just worried that I can't go to the theatre anymore without the spectre. The spectre is haunting me, the spectre of George Osborne. Okay, so the thing I would strongly advise you to do is do not do a column on this topic. (laughs) It just has like the feeling of something which would go viral and not in a good it's way. It's very relatable. I think yeah. lots of people will probably go, that's so true. When I go to the theatre, George Osborne's always there as well. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us! Indeed. Um, I'm, I was, I've been ill for the last three weeks, so I thought I was a celebratory, like, I no longer have a chest infection, You Ask Us. Um, this week's You Ask Us is from Richard Fernandez on the Twitters. He even put a hashtag on it. Wow. that's. I really feel like we've moved into the digital age here. If a Tory MP writes a letter to Graham Brady, can they change their mind and get it back? So basically what happens is the Tories have got a backbench committee, which is currently run by Sir Graham Brady, who Theresa May saw fit to give a knighthood to in the New Year's Honours list, always helpful, who is a big proponent of grammar schools, which will also be relevant and come up. He kind of keeps basically the kind of Tory shit list about if you decide that you think that the Tory leader is rubbish, you send a letter to him. If it reaches a certain threshold, give me... 15% of the Conservative Parliamentary Party, which at the moment is 48. Then it triggers a vote of no confidence. If the leader loses the vote of no confidence, do they actually have to resign or is it... Yeah, they have to. I mean, they're not like the Labour Party. They don't have like a vote, a no confidence thing, and then someone goes, oh, we don't need to build a constitutional ejector seat into this because what could possibly go wrong? No other party in the Democratic world would do that. UKIP. No, UKIP do have an ejector seat. They just have like a... It's broken. <laughs> they just have... The UKIP's no confidence rule is hilarious, right? Because basically the NEC can go, we'd like to have a no confidence. And then if the leader says no, there's a... So basically well, you... Well, the leader go, I have confidence in me. And then and you have enough. a full confidence vote at a party AGM, right? Right. So it effectively... That's why Henry Bolton is still... Has he resigned or not? I can't remember. No, he I, would say, I really don't want to commit 
to saying whether or not Henry Bolton is still leader of UKIP or indeed still in UKIP. I, I, I again, you know, I, I worry exists. that the theme of this episode is a list of things of which, about which Stephen just does not have the headspace for. That's very but simply, like you know, Sherlock Holmes famously, and he didn't know that the Earth went round the Sun. Yeah. That's sort of how I feel about UKIP now. I don't. Well, it's like you've got to have like the Marie Kondo approach to like <laughs> politics. Like, does it bring joy? No. Yeah, I, yeah. Like ultimately, no. Yeah. I'm thinking about the failure of UKIP does spark joy, but I don't need to know whether who is currently leader for that to happen. Yeah. So. Um, so, so what happens when you get forty-eight le- letters to Graham Brady? There were reports that there were like nearly that number, and I think certainly, although who knows whether or not those are true, there is a lot of discontent. Um, Simon Heffer writes in this week's magazine about people like Nicholas Soames, who is very much a party grandee, he's like Churchill's grandson, just like the most Tory you can be, I guess. Even though Winston Churchill was in a bunch of different parties, never mind. You know, actually, sort of tweeting that that, that then the, the party is kind of crap. And Johnny Mercer, who we mentioned in the previous section, said, you know, the window is closing. So people who are slightly you know, independent-minded, they are not on the payroll vote, but are kind of beginning to look more and more kind of anxious about the, the direction of the party. So I think she's in trouble, but the question is whether or not she's in any more trouble than she has been for the vast majority of the rest of, you know, since the election. Yeah, I mean, so I am dubious about any story which purports to ha- have spoken to someone who knows how many people have signed their letters. Ultimately, although Graham Brady is, you know, more of a Theresa May fan than the average Conservative MP, Graham Brady is only 50, which is quite young for politics. Yeah, he's got a, yeah, he could reasonably expect to have a long long post-Theresa May career ahead of him. Part of why he keeps that job is he's respected by MPs for his discretion. I simply don't buy that he's wandering around being like, hey, what rhymes with 40 and is the number of letters I have? I just don't buy that that is going on. Be- <laughs> that weird clicking sound, apologies, this was me attempting to stimulate a wink for audio. Yeah, but also you wouldn't say what rhymes with 40, you'd say what, what rhymes with hurty hate, all right, would you? I mean, otherwise you're just saying the number, Stephen. Yeah, but um, he's, I'm, I'm assuming that most people he's talking to like, aren't going to get... You know, kind of, you've got to spell it out for people. Henty heaven. Um, yeah. But, okay. you know, so I, I, basic, basically that, that is... your Graham Brady mime, which was otherwise beautiful. It just feels to me unlikely that that is what is going on. However, because no one knows how many letters there have been, and one of the, uh, I guess, you know, I said about people not doing rule changes and they haven't really thought through. In the past, you wrote a letter, and at the end of the year, if the number hadn't gone back up to 48... Then you know all of the letters kind of vanish. Cleared. Yeah, that's really great. And now, if you write a letter, yeah, it just sits there. But until... you can withdraw it, presumably. You can. Oh yeah, go, you can. No, she's actually she's brilliant. Do you know what that conference speech really won me over? Yeah, no, it's not like one of the other things where you kind of go, you know, okay, you know, no backsies. Do when when the threshold is triggered and you get to forty eight, do you ever find out who the forty eight were, or is it a secret ballot forever? It's a secret ballot. Which increases the likelihood of it happening. I mean, that is the, if I were designing the Tory party rules, that would be the way I would design it for maximum lols. Yeah, I don't know. The problem... So I think, weirdly, the fact it's a secret ballot it, it is probably a net neutral, right? Because the fact that it's anonymous and no one knows how many they are reduces significantly 
the chance that someone will send a, shall we say, an expressive letter of no confidence. You know, it reduces the chances that you are, say, Justine Greening or, you know, one of the, like, many sacked junior ministers, your Mark Garnier or whatever, of you just sitting down and going, I have no confidence in Theresa May. Love and kisses, Mark. But that's what um, the Telegraph op-ed pages are for, surely. Yes. I mean, remember, do you remember the great season of Jeremy Corbyn No Confidence blogs? I mean, some of those were... Mm, beautiful um i i do sadly have that summer scarred in the worst rooms of my memory yeah uh, at, the, at the theater last night they started playing seven nation army and i had a sort of almost involuntary shiver it's just like a pavlovian response it's like someone ringing a bell i just sort of feel deeply panicked and distressed that i'm going to be made to write a blog when i hear that sound but basically i think because it's anonymous although there's the freedom to do it the risk of doing it is significantly higher it is true that patience among with Theresa May among conservatives MPs is going down and they are increasingly aware that as long as she is there they will have no strategic you know kind of argument with with you know with Labour they will have no kind of overarching vision etc etc but the basic fear of a large chunk of that party, which is that if you have a Tory leadership election before Brexit, then your leadership race comes down to who is the most Brexity, mm. won't go away. There is also this awareness that the next Conservative leadership election will be horrible for them to live through because you have so many candidates. You have some people who are running effectively to survive or like Pretty Patel to come back. Mm. And you'll have some proper kneecappings as well. I mean, any leadership election which might very well involve Michael Gove is going to involve some dirty, dirty briefings. Yeah, I mean, I think Michael Gove is actually quite well-placed for the mm. leadership race. No, he offers competence. I mean, that's the thing, is he's one of the very few ministers who is currently actually, you know, out there and, you know, and, and doing their brief. And Boris Johnson has, I think, faded because of his lacklustre performance. And, like, people feel that he's been given a serious job and he has not risen to it in the party. Obviously, the people one speaks to are always, in, you know, always, a, are always a flawed sample of any parliamentary party. I would say it is true to say that the average Conservative MP is more annoyed. However, when you actually go like, so, you know, have you done anything about this? Except obviously I don't say it in quite that kind of pejorative a tone. That number is just not even close to creeping up to 15% of the Conservative MPs I speak to. So I still think actually, despite everything, Theresa May may be in less immediate danger than we think because... I think the thing to watch out is, is successor watch. I think that's the if you if you want to make a calculation about Theresa May's survival, it's it, at any point does somebody getting a lot of great write ups is obviously on manoeuvres, and is there a feeling that everybody is coalesce, coalescing around one or two people? Well, that thing is if if yeah, then the, in some ways the the good thing about party conference for her was that her speech was the story of the conference because no one else. Had a, so yeah, the only one who had a good one is Ruth Davison. Ruth Davison can't become conservative. Like there, there is there is no safe way to get Ruth Davison from Scot from the Scottish Parliament to the Westminster Parliament. So that's nothing doing. Um, and so, and yeah, currently, you know, who are the other leadership candidates? Gavin Williamson currently detonating over a fireplace. Um, He's not a fireplace salesman anymore, Stephen. I want you to remember that. He's uh, left that all behind him. Indeed, so he has. So, yeah, the, the the answer to the question is, yes, the letters can be revoked if you want to. Um, the letters stick around indefinitely. Who knows what number they are? Maybe by the time this comes out. I mean, this is the thing. I, I honestly think that uh, 
when that threshold is triggered, it will actually be a big surprise to everyone because Graham Brady keeps his cards close to his chest, right? Then yeah, he... but I've always said this since the bit. You know, it's one of those things where people want a prediction from you, and actually, my prediction is it's it's incredibly unpredictable. And I, I, you know, I wouldn't bet on it either way. So it's just more of the great political insight that you're, uh, you've come to expect from us. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-host, Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is from the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Why not follow us on Twitter at NS underscore podcasts? Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.